Hello everybody, welcome to this week's podcast. It's Andy here, hope you are doing well. Thank you for tuning in. We have another great guest with us today. We've got Andrew Caldwell. Now, Andrew Caldwell is a physiotherapist who we've actually used for many years, sending some of our students, including Aaron Rye, who he looks after on the European tour, and also myself and Pierce, looking after our health, uh, which has been challenging over the years. But Andrew really knows his stuff. He's got years of experience working in treatment, rehabilitation, and sports performance. He's a speaker, and he's also the host of the Sports Performance Show podcast. And today, it's a it's an interesting discussion. We wanted to talk about longevity in golf, something that not many people talk about, but something that is really important and probably unique about our sport. We can play golf for a long, long time, so it's important that we look after our bodies to minimize the risk of injury, but also so we can play this game for hopefully many years to come. So this is what the main topic of this is, and there's some great stuff in here that that I think that if you listen to this, you can apply and put into your game and hopefully continue to play for a long time. So let's get into today's podcast and please welcome Andrew Caldwell. So welcome, Andy Caldwell. How the devil are you? Everything good? I am all, I am all good. Thank you, Piers. And how are you, Andy, as well? You're all good? All good, yes. Doing our best to keep moving forward and uh, having some good positive conversations, hence why we've got you on the podcast today. Ah, fantastic. Excellent. Looking forward to it. We only want positivity, sir. So, <laughs> of course, always. Because look, there's so many things that we could talk about with you, but we felt that, you know, anyone listening to this who's looking to create some longevity in their game and, and stay away from injuries best they can, it's, we've got some great questions for you. So hopefully we can get through them. But let's get straight into it as far as longevity is concerned. So what are the sort of things that a golfer needs to be looking at in their pre and post round games of golf? How can they help themselves? I think probably to put a bit of a wider context on it to start with, I mean, golf is is a unique sport in many ways. It's, it's one of the few sports that you can play for most of your life. So if we start at that point, really, if you look look at, compare it to things like, you know, rugby, football, they've got, you can play them for a certain period of time, usually before either your body tells you you can't or you get injured and that can also be the the situation with golf, but in theory, it's a, you know it's a cradle to grave type of activity essentially, which is one of its unique features, and and that's fantastic. the The key determinant factor of that then really is is how healthy can I be, and that's whether you're a, an adult recreational player or even if you're a tour professional. You know, again, it's one of the the few sports in which a, a professional sports person can earn significant. Um, amount of money throughout the whole of their career, especially with the way the seniors tours have now evolved mm. as well. So again, irrespective of your level of golf or your motivations to why you want to play golf, the, the key aspect that underpins it all is, am I healthy enough to play golf essentially? And I suppose, yeah. again, that's got a wider context because we know exercise is very powerful, staying fit and healthy. Golf is a fantastic vehicle for that, really. We know that, you know, people that play golf tend to live longer. Their morbidity is reduced. So, it, you know, there's this massive kind of um, <laughs> opportunity, really, for, for golfers to stay healthy, first of all, and then play this sport for, for the whole of their life. Sure enough, things change in the golf game as we evolve through life, but it, that's one of its unique features, really. So underpinning it all, really, is, is remaining healthy. Yeah. Um, I think I think there's one key thing and thinking about this, Andy, is that I think there's not many golfers who are thinking that way. I don't think there's the many golfers who are going, right, I really want to sort of look after myself a lot now for the long, you know, for 10, 20 years time. Yeah. And with the industry that you're in, 
until something happens where they go, I've, I've done something, I need to start looking after myself. It almost takes that injury to go, hang on a minute, I really love this game. I want to continue to play. So I suppose what we want to do, and I suppose all of us, in, all of us here want people to be able to play for longer, but educating them to start thinking that way as well, to thinking that they can play till they're 80 and start putting in routines and practices to go, well, how can I set myself up to, to limit the risk of injury um, and just keep myself fit and mobile? I think not many people are thinking that way, I don't think. Do you see that in your, in your yeah, work? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a long-term view, isn't it, really? And, and I see that not just in golf, but people taking care of their health and wellness generally. It takes a health scare, a health shock or an episode of significant acute pain for them to really pay attention to essentially what they've lost, isn't it, Andy? You, you yeah. know, it's kind of, I can't play golf now. And that's really, you know, frustrating me. So now I'm going to make the change or it's the person, you know, it's probably a little bit more serious, but the person maybe that has a heart problem that then thinks, okay, well, I've got to stop smoking or drinking, for example, it needs that shock for them to change their behaviors. Now with, with golfers in particular, um, if they can take a long-term view and be, it all comes back to being proactive, doesn't it? Having a longer-term view and being proactive with health and wellness, because that not only comes back to the point that we're making there before about keeping yourself in the long game, being able to play golf for the whole of your life. But it also links to some of the performance deficits that we see with people as they age through the game as well. You, you know, the, the big one that comes straight to mind is deterioration of club head speed, for example. So if we can keep people fit and healthy as they pass through their lives, we're not just helping their golf game, we're helping them them generally as well. But it does take that, that shift of mindset often. You, you know, we would like people to be more aware of the longer term aspects rather than waiting for something to go wrong and then being reactive to it. Yeah, and that's, I mean, look, it's one of the questions that we've got down here. Why do people just wait until they get injured before they do it? Look, I met you nearly 20 years ago, probably 18 years now. You wouldn't think about that. You I'm looking good. I don't know about you, Piers. You look, know, 20 years is one. <laughs> <laughs> and it looks like he's getting younger, to be yeah, fair. Yeah, he does. <laughs> Benjamin <laughs> Button. Benjamin Button. <laughs> <laughs> the, the only reason I came to see you on the, it was the technical road then, wasn't it? And it was literally, I've got a hip problem. My right yeah. hip is killing me. Uh, it's yeah. still hurting now, but at least you've been able to keep me going for about 18 years now. But it, yeah. it, I mean, I suppose we can answer this question now. Why do? Why are people just not willing to go there well that's that's a that's a big one because i think that's that's deeper than golf it's kind of mindset and your approach to life generally people people of that mindset that would be reactive also generally have a mindset where they might be maybe a little bit less on the practice side i could say lazy but i'm not going to say that it's, <laughs> i think yeah, i think it's one of those things where it you're either internally motivated to want to change these things in the long term from how you view the world, essentially, mm -hmm. or you wait for things to occur and then react to them. So I think that that fundamentally maybe involves a shift in somebody's mindset, essentially. Um, and, and some people will react to things in a very positive way. You know, they'll have an episode of back pain, for example, because that's one of the more common problems we see related to golf. They'll have some treatment, have some rehabilitation. And they'll be ultra diligent with everything, therefore, that they need to do to keep themselves in good shape. Um, other people, unfortunately, will have an episode of back pain, have treatment for a short period of time, do some exercises. The minute that pain stops, they stop doing everything that got them to where they were 
before. So again, it comes back to education, really people seeing the bigger pitch. And that's part of my role when I'm working with golfers and just generally with patients in clinic as well to, to educate them about this long-term process of, I use an analogy of brushing your teeth. You know, if you look at dental healthcare, it's one of the few aspects of healthcare where people have always been prophylactic about what they do to stop problems from occurring. You know, you brush your teeth to stop uh, tooth decay and stop problems with your teeth. What other aspects of healthcare do we see that operates like that? You know, it's, it's essentially, it's a reactive illness culture that we're embedded in. We wait for problems to go wrong and then we treat them. So we've got to get people much more towards this proactive and preventative model of healthcare and fitness, really. Yeah, and it's probably quite difficult, isn't it? If you're a golfer who's never been injured before, though, and you never really think what you're thinking about golf is, you know, it's a pastime as opposed to a sport. And then suddenly ah, the back goes and yeah, yeah. It throws things out. But let's get into that original question that we asked 10 minutes ago. So (laughs) (laughs) we said this before we went on. I'm like a politician. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, again, just going to the, if we think about the the golfer who is obviously playing golf on a Saturday, what can they do in the lead up to that? And what can, so the pre and then the post habits, routines, what can they be doing? Well, this is where where I get on my warm-up soapbox, isn't it, really? Yeah, it's really every... I can confidently say probably for the last 15, close to 20 years, it's something that I've been trying to advocate for golfers since day one, certainly teaching PGA pros the same to integrate warm-ups into their lessons, that type of thing, really. Um, when we look at all of the evidence and we look at low-hanging fruit and the early opportunities to make change, really warm-up is, is the biggest thing that people can tend to do before they practice, before they play, any aspect of golf before they pick up a club to hit shots, physically warm up, prepare your body, prepare your mind to play the sport. What we know is not enough people do this. And this is at every level of golf. You know, it's getting much, much better. But even when you when you watch some of the professional players warming up, you see that it's somewhat inadequate, you know, mm-hmm. in many cases. And uh, it just doesn't mirror you. Know, if, we, if we take ourselves out of golf and we look at the sports, for example, um if you look at something like football will be an intense short-sided game just before kickoff tennis players will serve you know flat out to try and get themselves as close to that intensity at which they want to perform and what do golfers do professional golfers they they go and put <laughs> you know so it, it it's fundamentally somewhere in there this this kind of mantra of warming up has been either lost or it's not being instilled as as part of the normal culture and framework so you know if i was going to give one piece of advice to people really arrive at the course or your lesson early 15 minutes early get there with plenty of time because again it's something that happens regularly isn't it you're late to the tea time you grab a bacon butty smash your coffee on the first tee try and lash one with your driver and it's only going to head one way, you, you know, it's either not going to go where you want, or it's going to put you at higher risk of injury. And the other thing that happens as well is people tend to say, I don't really get going till the third or fourth hole. So they're using those first couple of holes to effectively warm up. So get to the course early, warm up, and we've um, filmed a warm up that's really concise and straightforward for flexible in 15. Um, you know, just do something basic. But the key thing really is try to have some dynamic mobility work in there that we know can transfer well to the golf game. Um, we we also look at speed of movement. So again, one of the big things that you see people do on course, golf course is this kind of pedestrian looking swings with even sometimes two clubs, almost like a baseball type pattern. 
And it's, it's probably not even one third of the speed that they're going to hit the driver. So we need to map in the speed at which you're going to hit your first shot. And it's very rarely a wedge, is it? It's, it's always, you know, a higher club head speed club that we need to prepare ourselves to hit from the first tee. So have some dynamic framework of mobility, have some speed work in there as well. And you can use things like super speed sticks and other bits and bobs like that as well to try and get that speed of movement there. Essentially prepare your body and your mind to play golf from the first hole to the 18th. So that's probably one of the easiest wins that people can have. Yeah. Um, get to the course early, do a physical warm up, and then obviously hit some balls and progress that into where you want to play. Yeah. So it's avoiding those static stretches really, isn't it? Making sure that it's, it's movement as opposed to just standing there and trying to touch your toes or standing there just doing a stretch like this. We want that body moving and yeah. Yeah. If we, if we look at that from a common sense perspective, you know, if we look at somebody hitting a driver, it's a fast explosive movement. Even if you look at amateur level players with higher handicaps, it's probably the, one of the quickest movements they'll make in the week. Mm. So um, I think from that perspective, we've got to prepare the bodies to move quickly and move powerfully as well. Uh, if they can do that, then obviously their performance should improve and, and obviously their injury risk reduced. And we know all of the evidence around warm-up tells us that every performance variable improves. You know, your club head speed improves, your centeredness of impact gets better, you've got a lower risk of injury. It's a complete no-brainer. You know, no golfer on the planet that plays golf doesn't want those things to happen. Yeah. So it's just it's getting right. into that routine and habits, setting habits, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. You've probably got people with a centered strike there now. They're all going to be doing warm ups because of centered strike. <laughs> <laughs> but you said to me, I'd hit it straight. <laughs> actually, that's a funny, that, that's a, probably a good point, Piers, actually. And it's probably a reason why many people don't warm up because when you start to warm up on the first tee, everybody looks across and says, oh, you know, we've got a professional on the tee. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's that culture of it not being normal. And then if you don't hit a great shot as your first shot and you've done all this warm up, probably three out of the four yeah. ball are going to be ribbing you, aren't we'll they? So it's, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's, it, it's, it's tongue in cheek, but it's, it is yeah. a valuable reason or, yeah. or excuse why people don't warm up. And I the other thing like really that. is not having adequate facilities at clubs as well to yeah. do it as well. So just, yeah, get to, get to the course early, keep it simple, straightforward and, uh, and reap the benefits really. I like it. Love it. I love it. Okay. We're going to just talk. And I mean, something that's sort of, I suppose a hot topic right now is, recovery there's a lot of focus on on i suppose more so on rest recovery what should the listeners be thinking about when sort of when they're considering about their recovery and and just talk a little bit about i suppose what the data is saying and what sort of things that they should be maybe focusing on really well I, I think probably one of the big ones that will cross lots of boundaries irrespective of the level of golf you play or how often you play golf is sleep you know, it's, it's one of the, the huge ones that, that people just don't pay enough attention to. And again, like warm up, it's such an easy win for people. Just get enough hours of sleep, you know, close your eyes, get good rest, because there's lots of valuable processes that go on when people sleep. So if you look at um, Professor Matthew Walker's book on sleep, you know, it's a fantastic read. It's an audible as well. And he's a great narrator. So I'd urge everybody to to check out that book really and understand the value of it really because once you start understanding how impaired sleep impacts on your general health but also your ability to recover for the next day and the next week and so on you begin to understand how important sleep is so that that's probably a number one place to start get good sleep you'll feel refreshed 
Um, and obviously with that, you know, start to look into things like sleep hygiene, try to not have blue light coming into your eyes for 30 to 60 minutes before you sleep. Try not to ingest any alcohol because that can disturb sleep patterns as well. Um, be well hydrated, try and sleep in a cool room. All these things that people tend to know about. The key thing again is they just don't do it. They, they know about these things. They just don't do it. So I think try to aim for eight to 10 hours of sleep most evenings and that that will help and uh, i was see uh, talking to a sleep expert recently myself and they were saying the patterns is an important thing as well try not to um, disturb the pattern of sleep say what people tend to do is they might go to bed at 10 and wake at six for example during the week and then the weekend they have a lay-in and um, now that's not going to happen if you've got an early tea time but if you disturb the pattern by laying in the weekend then you you disturb that regular rhythm, you know, that circadian rhythm of light and dark. So try and keep a regular rhythm as well. So sleep's probably a good place to start. Again, it's an easy win. Um, the coming back to the point about recovery, maybe after the round, for example, I suppose that depends on how much golf you're playing. If you're playing one round, then obviously you've got plenty of time to recover relative to the next time that you might play golf. If you're playing twice in a weekend, then you're going to have to look at maybe if we look at the Saturday, Sunday golfer, what you do immediately after that round. So we can start to fuel our bodies correctly, making sure that we've got a nice balance of carbohydrates, proteins, and fats as, as a nice meal afterwards. Make sure that we're well hydrated. We can do some post round dynamic stretches if we feel things have got a little bit tight or stiff that's probably the time to spend a little bit of time on say a foam roller using a percussive massage gun um, doing some static and dynamic stretch work after the round and just starting to prepare your body if you're playing again on Sunday so that you're getting to the tee box on the Sunday in in decent condition so definitely doing some activities post round um, is really going to help your recovery into the second round. Now, if you're a professional player from Thursday through Sunday, for example, then that becomes even more important. Or if you're a high-ranking amateur player where you've maybe got to play 36-hole tournaments, for example, morning and afternoon, it's even more critical. So the density of the rounds of golf coming together, the tighter that squeezes, the more important recovery in between rounds becomes. Because what you'll tend to find, I think Justin Rose said this uh, recently, that um, he really places an emphasis on not arriving to the course on Thursday tired. You know, when he was a younger player, he was working really hard at his training through the week, but he was finding then that as he was making the cut, and maybe on Saturday and Sunday, he'd worked so hard in the front end of the week physically that he was getting a bit fatigued and tired towards Saturday and Sunday. And that's been a bit of a mind shift from what I understand in his training. His primary purpose really is to work hard still, but not allow that to impact on his performance in the tournament week. Yeah. Um, I don't know whether that answers the questions. Well, yeah, it's brilliant. brilliant. We, we, we're obviously, obviously going through that process a little bit with Aaron at the moment. And yeah. it's something that he yeah. needs to, to improve on, you know, and it's, you, I mean, you hear the stories of Tiger Woods who, you know, doesn't sleep well, four hours of sleep and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, the thing to say about sleep as well. And, and, you know, I know Andy gets gets up early and you do as well, Piers, you know, much earlier than I. And, and you know, if you read Robin Sharma's book about 5M Club, it suits some people and mm. it doesn't suit others. You, you know, I think it's not a panacea. It works for some people. Some people are known to have a, a body clock where it tends to sink better. 
Um, if you're a younger player, for example, like an adolescent or teenage player, that might not work so well because we know that circadian rhythms in teenagers and adolescents are slightly different to adults. Um, so, you know, find what works for you, but just make sure that you get an adequate amount of sleep and then shift your day around based on what's working best for you. And then the other thing that with the professional players is this early, late tea time that we see issues with. And, you know, we've had experience of, of how that might affect players in particular. Um, something definitely to look at, how does your body respond to rising early and or if you've got later tea time, you tend to kind of rise a little bit later and then have to perform a little bit later in the day, for example. They're all valuable things to look at. And I think there's a fair amount of, of variability in human beings that's been established with regard to that. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So in terms of, I mean, look, you've seen thousands of golf swings and thousands of injuries. <laughs> We've seen thousands of, well, Thousands of golf swings and a few injuries. Yeah. I sent you a thousand injuries. <laughs> <laughs> you thought you'd seen a thousand golf swings since you've seen mine. And then, <laughs> exactly. And then you learned a few things. <laughs> I think we've had a thousand injuries between me and Pierce, yeah. to be fair. Yeah. <laughs> what would you say, Andy, from, from your experience, like what are the swing styles characteristics that you see that tend to cause the majority of problems? And, and what should people maybe be looking to avoid when it comes to their golf swing, you know, from what we see, you know, whether it's a sway, you know, what, whatever it might be that they can think, actually, I do that. That could be potentially a risk for me down the line. Well, I think the thing that we know from the data is that the number one injury for professionals and, and amateurs is, is spinal pain. So, you know, if we look at that as the, as the big group of injuries that we see, um, if we just look at what's required for golf, the biomechanics, you know, when you're hitting a driver and it's above 100 miles an hour, for example, you're placing around about eight times body weight and compression and torque through your lower back in 0.2 of a second. So it's a significant amount of force that the body has to cope with. I think what we also understand now from evidence is that how movements look isn't always related to whether you're going to get injured or not. You know, we know this from other sports, for example. So the kinematics of how um, movements look on camera, for example, doesn't always relate to that person, therefore might get injured. You know, we can have somebody with a fairly funky looking swing, for example, and they're absolutely bulletproof. And then you have somebody else who moves pretty well, you know, kinematically on the camera, for example, and they have this historical pattern of injuries, for example. So it comes back to really for you, how much force can you handle? You, you know, that's that's the key determinant factor. When you apply loading forces to your body, are you able to handle them? And more than that, are you able to handle them repetitiously over time? And if, if that equation is in balance, so what you're asking your body to do, this load capacity issue, so if capacity is underserved by load, so load exceeds capacity, then typically that's going to result in pain or injury. So if we can create robust athletes that handle forces well, and this is irrespective of the level of golf that we play, you know, if we handle loads and forces well through our body, then there's a certain amount of variation in human beings. And we know this from golf swings. There isn't an ideal golf swing. We've got what works for one person, won't work for another. We can look at the elites and, you know, marvel at how well they move. And it looks fantastic to look at. But that doesn't really reflect what our maybe 55-year-old club handicapper might be doing on Saturday. So we, we've got to almost look at context of that movement and what it means. But most importantly, the thing that underpins that really is move efficiently, 
relative to your golf game, handle forces and load well and be explosive. And really that should mitigate your injury risk as low as possible. And then the other thing really is around how much golf you're playing. If you're a person that plays, I don't know, two times a week, for example, and you go on a golfing holiday to Turkey and you play every day for a week, that's a massive upshift in load. And it disrupts what we call the acute chronic workload ratio. So, you know, what that means essentially is you're doing too much too soon. And irrespective of how well you move or how strong you are, if you massively exceed what your body's used to in a very short space of time, there's a really high risk that you're going to sustain injury. So just being careful with load progression as well. That's, that's another key aspect of what we need to be teaching golfers. Yeah. How, how would you, and this is something I'll add to this as well, because we've all been there on this golfing trip, or even you might be just there on a, on a Thursday and you're about to tee off and you, and you feel as though the back is tight and it's, it's a little bit uncomfortable. How far do you recommend that the golfers push this? I mean, you know, that they're allowed, that they're, how much, how much, <laughs> I'm trying to think here now, when should they call you? <laughs> if they're in pain and they're feeling some sort of pain, yeah. what's the parameter for them to, or the, the tipping point for them to say, I need to call Andy Caldwell? Well, I, I think the key thing is, is how it's going to affect your golf game. You know, we get to a certain level as human beings where pain changes movement. And if pain is changing movement to a level where it's negative on mm. your performance values as a golfer, you shouldn't be on the golf course. Yes. You know, if, if you're getting to hole 14 and you're limping because your knee's hurting you, you're not going to be hitting good golf shots. So you, you kind of, you're in that process of bargaining where I know, I know my knee's really hurting me, but I'm going to carry on playing. You need to be sensible yeah. because from that perspective, there's only one way your golf game's going and that's down. Your performance is going to be significantly affected by pain because you know, when people often come to the clinic and they say, oh, I've got a really high pain tolerance. <laughs> <laughs> Don't ever say that to Andy. Andy's everybody's pain tolerance is individual to them and it's contextual as well so from that perspective really if you're ever in a situation on a golf course or on a range where where you feel that pain is changing how you move in your golf swing walk away yeah because it's not a positive situation to be in you may well be making that pain worse you may may not cause more damage so to speak of the tissues but you certainly won't be playing good golf so as a rough rule of thumb um, if we look at pain on a severity score of 0 to 10 and 10 is severe pain and 0, 0, most people can operate with some discomfort between 0 and 3 and 4, that kind of level. But anything above that is inevitably going to be changing movement. And particularly if that pain is coming on quickly and it's deteriorating rapidly and or it's progressing through the round and getting worse. Again, that's not a positive sign. So from that perspective, I'd, I'd urge all golfers really never to exceed those kind of values, irrespective of what the problem is. And also don't let problems persist. We know that golfers miss a huge amount of time from golf through letting problems continue for a long period of time. Mm. And you've, you know, your membership is valuable. You pay money for it. You want to be out on the course. You want to be able to have your, your lessons with your local pro um, and get the most from your coaching. And if there's pain in the system, there's less chance that that's going to happen really. Yeah. I, well, I can definitely, you know, testify to golf swing. My golf swing 100% changes when I'm not fit. And yep. it's changed a lot in the last few years. That's <laughs> 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 hard. Hi everyone. Andy here. Just letting you know about something that we've created just for you. MeAndMyGolf.com is our membership platform that we believe is the best resource out there to improve your golf. And one of the questions that we get asked all the time is what's the difference between YouTube and the website? 
And the main difference being is that sometimes people can get lost in content on YouTube and not really having a clear structure or plan of where to go. So we wanted to create something that was, was really going to help golfers. We've got over a thousand uh, coaching videos on there, but our main thing or main feature on there are the coaching plans. And we've seen some amazing results from these plans. And these are basically carefully designed plans on all areas of the game so you don't have to think or worry about what to do. We tell you exactly what to practice each week and whether you're looking to break a certain score, fix a slice, improve your putting or short game, we have a plan that will suit you. We're even staggered at some of the results that golfers are getting from these as well and we even have a private Facebook group where all of our members go and share experiences and support each other. Real nice place, positive place to be. And we'd love to see you over there and have the chance to help you with your game. So make sure you head over to meandmygolf.com and check out your free trial with no obligations to join. Check it out and see if you can find a plan and become a part of this amazing community. So let's go on to some strength training, Andy, because I think look, I think if the majority of people now watching the PGA Tour, European Tour, the golfers now are obviously described as athletes. You know, you've got Brooks Kepka, DJ, you've got great Brighton to see, D isn't it? It is. It is great to see. And they're all doing their thing, lifting weights and, you know, becoming stronger. For the average amateur, how important is strength training, not only for performance, but also for just for the, again, back to the longevity thing. How important is it to do some strength training to continue your life in golf, really? And should they be incorporating this on a weekly basis? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say that, you know, there is this saying you, you can't go wrong getting strong and you, you can. Uh, if strength isn't the metric that you need to improve. So you, you could be the stiffest person on earth, Piers. <clears throat> <laughs> and if you don't move well, then you can have all the strength in the world. You know, I, I use the analogy of a baseball pitcher. If, if their shoulder can't externally rotate, they're not going to be able to get into that cocking face to throw the ball quick, basically. If they've got a very stiff shoulder with this kind of range, they could be the strongest person in the world. They need to work on the range of motion first before they then develop strength through range. But for everybody having higher strength values, we know affects performance. So if we deal with that, first of all, um, it's directly related to club head speed. It will improve your rate of force development. What does that mean? Well, basically I can hit the ball further. So, you know, it's, that's the primary reason well, one of the primary reasons why professional players now are training like athletes because they're they're getting the performance gains and obviously look everybody's looking at Bryson and seeing what he's done and and obviously looking at his data. Um, but it's almost the norm now because the guys are just hitting it so far on tour and you've got to be competitive um, at those levels. So from a performance perspective, there's no downside to being stronger. There's also a bit of a myth about strength training as well, that you will lose flexibility that was around for years. And there's no real evidence to substantiate that people would say, well, I don't want to get too bulky because I'm going to lose range of motion. And, and that's really never been substantiated by the research. So um, most people will benefit from, from getting stronger. Absolutely. Um, in terms of in mitigating injury risk, again, Huge studies have told us that if you're stronger, your risk of sports related injury reduces by up to 50%. So, you know, if you're combining that with regular strength training and a warm up, then obviously you're making some serious headway into reducing your injury risk and stopping you from getting there. Towards the longevity point that you're making there, we know that uh, above the age of 50, there's this natural process that occur, occurs called sarcopenia. And that's really where we start to lose muscle density. 
So I'm 46 this year. And if I take myself back 20 years, if I apply the same training plan to a 26 year old and a 46 year old, I'm going to get some significantly different results potentially because of their ability to hypertrophy their muscle. So particularly in the above fifties, where this natural process of sarcopenia is occurring, and therefore we tend to lose muscle strength that's associated with that, it becomes even more valuable. And it's actually the primary reason that probably people's handicaps deteriorate most because their, their short game shouldn't be changing a huge amount, really, even in that above 50 category, unless there's a significant issue. The biggest influencing factor really is their deteriorating club head speeds. And we know that that's related to strength and power declines at almost twice the rate of strength. So it's really, really significant. And I would say for the above 50 golfer, it's even more important for you to do strength training, but it tends to be the other way around that as people age, they do less strength yeah. training. Yeah. So it's really important to keep that going. And if you can have a good stock of strength as you pass into your fifties, your sixties and your seventies, then this opportunity to play golf for, for the rest of your life really is maintained and preserved. It's pretty, it's pretty important. This health stuff, isn't it? <laughs> if you think about it, you know, all the conversations that we're having now and you look at golf, and golf is an amazing sport and a lot of people maybe avoid the health side of things and looking after their bodies because let's face it, it, it takes effort. It takes a yeah. lot of effort to actually do it, to, to, to have good routines, to, to eat well, to exercise, to fit it all in when people just go, I just want to have fun on the golf course. And, and a lot of people do, but at the same time with a few good habits that we can install now and start yeah. looking after ourselves, it just means we can enjoy this game that we love a little bit longer and still reap the benefits of the performance as well. It all, it all ties together. Does that mean you can't have a can of Asahi when you're playing? You can still have a can of Asahi, Pierce. Of course, of course you, can. you can. Yeah, I think the, the, key, thing, the key thing really is there's very, very few people. <laughs> there's very few people that go through a process of working on their strength and conditioning for golf and exit that process in a worse position. Yeah, yeah. I can't think of one. And I've worked with golfers for 20 odd years, 23 years, you, you know, so you will always put yourself in a more positive position. It depends on how much you want it and how much effort you put into it. Yeah. 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 Okay. Let's just go. Um, we've got one more before we get into the quick fire. Um, we talked a little bit about diet. And I think quick fire round. Um, <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> it's very personal. This one is Andy. <laughs> um, so yes, let's talk a little bit about diet, but more on the supplement side of things, really, Andy. I know that you're somebody who obviously looks after yourself and supplements are obviously, a, I know they're a part of your routine. Yeah. What should people be considering from a supplement side of things? Well, I, th I think, first of all, we need to recognize there's an awful lot of BS out there in the supplement market. You know, let's get that out there straight away. There's an awful lot of products out there that uh, try to be sold to people that just really don't carry any evidence or support. So there's probably a few key ones that people need to be aware of. And these have got really good support. I'm obviously not a sports nutritionist, but these advice and recommendations do come from the leading sports nutritionist. I was lucky enough to have Professor Graham Close on my podcast, and he's the nutritionist for the European tour. Um, and we were discussing supplement use in sport. If, if we're in the amateur levels, um, the professionals are slightly different. We'll come on to that in a minute. 
then uh, protein, whey protein is, is really, really important. And it's very effective. You know, now, again, if we discuss Bryson there for a second, he's allegedly taking, you know, six protein shakes a day with other bits and bobs in. And I think that was mainly from a convenience perspective as much as anything. You, you know, if you know how much protein you're getting, it's precise and it's measured and it's dosed, then there's no variability in the response that your body might make other than trying to get that from your food, for example. Um, so definitely whey protein can be useful for people. And most people tend to underconsume protein and overconsume carbohydrates. So that's something where you can play around with a mix of that, depending on what you're trying to do. Um, and they also, you know, they're easy to carry out in the course as well. Um, caffeine has got some really good evidence behind it and actually some good evidence with golf as well to suggest that it does improve golf performance. So, um, a double espresso just before you play half an hour before and maybe topping that up at, at uh, hole nine can be beneficial to sports performance, but do test it out because everybody's response to caffeine is slightly different. Oh, right, get jittery. Like we might need a toilet visit, those type of things really. So I know, I know, we, Andy's, I know what Andy's like after he has a coffee and I don't want to play in golf with him. To no. be <laughs> That's what I say. And, and actually then there's the option of, uh, of caffeine tablets rather than having a coffee because that can fluctuate as well um there's some other aspects really around depending on what you're trying to do if you're trying to build strength and power then there's really good evidence for creatine monohydrate uh, and that's actually got some good evidence for neural activity and clarity as well so you know you can just take i think five grams of creatine per day rather than going through that kind of loading phase dose if you're taking it continuously it's always there and that's going to help you to to build power and strength for golf as well so i think if people kind of look at those to start with that's where the evidence really lies there are some others on the periphery but I think the big one really for most people is looking if they're trying to build strength and power for golf, have adequate protein, you know, try and hit around about two grams per kilogram of body weight per day. That can be useful. That helps healing and repair regeneration as well. And that protein source can come from, from anywhere, you know, again, prior guest who's a world expert, Professor Stuart Phillips was telling me that your, your body uh, doesn't really know the type of protein you're ingesting the animal versus plants kind of argument it just needs enough yeah and the quality of animal protein is far higher than the quality of plant protein so if you're vegan obviously that can come from things like pea protein powders that are on the market now as well so they, they're all things for people to look at but again get the basics in in place first before we start getting towards the the kind of bells and whistles really Great. I love it. Yeah, and love try it. and get that from food where possible yeah, yeah, brilliant, brilliant. Right, okay, let's go quick fire. We've got four interesting ones. This one probably involves me or you. So maybe, thoughts. maybe. What's the funniest moment in the clinic that you've had? <laughs> um, I've had a quite quite a few embarrassing ones. So uh, I, I had one quite early. <laughs> early I quite had one quite early in my career, actually, probably go. within the first couple of years of qualifying where uh, as a physio, you obviously examine people and this particular lady had spinal pain. And, um, and I just kind of finished the, his the first part of the history and said, right, okay, if you can get yourself uh, undressed for the examination, we'll have a look at your spine. And, and I went out and then came back in to a lady with nothing on. 
and um, had to kind of cover my blushes and exit and tell her what to put back on, which was quite an interesting shoes. consultation. So, put your um, shoes back on. <laughs> so, um, so that that was an interesting start. The other thing, actually, you see some interesting socks, especially in winter. You know, ladies in particular will hide all sorts of socks underneath their winter boots. And then when they take the winter, their boots off for assessment, there's all sorts of Christmas socks under there. So that's quite interesting as well. Like a good start. <laughs> I, love that. I love that. All right. What would you change in golf? One thing. Um, I would work out a way in which we can change people's behaviors better. Um, because I think evidence out there to support lots of the areas that we've discussed today it's working out with that information being there people's behaviors just don't change you, you know we're trying to we try to educate people um we try to give them evidence-based information uh particularly say around warm we'll come back to that one again and their behavior patterns don't change so we've got to look at the vehicle for that information changing behavior and taking action that's probably yeah. one of the, the biggest things I'd look at. And that's probably quite a big area ranging from yeah. how we deliver that education to facilities on the courses and that type of thing. But that's probably something that's quite an interesting question to try and get to the bottom of really when we've got this information out there, why, why aren't more people doing strength conditioning work, warm up for golf, you know, um, not everybody wants and needs to do that, but, um, you know, when you look at the evidence and all of the evidence stacks up, that it's a complete no brainer and everybody plays better golf generally it's always been an interesting reason as to why more people don't do it really yeah it's interesting because we've, we've obviously we've got these whoop straps on and we had um will ahmed on a few weeks ago talking about the uh obviously just about whoop and the whole thing behind it and I'm still waiting for mine is it not there yet? Are you really <laughs> <laughs> are you wearing it are you wearing it too you, still, you really haven't got it oh can you see look I've oh got wow <laughs> um you must but, have <laughs> But yeah, no, it's interesting because you go, you, you look at the behavior thing and what you're talking about there. And because we yeah. have the data now and because we understand the data and we can see it, it changes the behavior. So yeah. for sleep and things like that. So I'm just there thinking, oh, if you imagine if you had something that was, imagine you had something on your wrist that said um, that you're primed and ready to go. Like let's say before it's, it's sort of saying your body is now primed to perform. And if you know that that would just change that behavior, it's you know, you know it's a product it, there, isn't it? Yeah, you can get you can get readiness data, can't you? It gives you that readiness value of, and depending on the system that you use, whether that's a traffic light system or it's a readiness percentage. Um, I, I think wearables are great; they're absolutely fantastic. I think there's a sector of people that wear wearables, and they've got all of that those foundations in place, which is fantastic. And there again, there's another sector of people that have the wearables look at the wear and don't actually do anything to change what they're seeing. You know, it comes back to that behavior change again. Yeah, yeah. You know, they'll, they'll, they'll maybe see that their recovery is down, yet they'll still continue not to sleep well or not change their diet or ingest too much alcohol, whatever the factor is that's causing the impaired kind of sleep in this uh, circumstance. So you've, you've got to use wearables sensibly. You've, you've got to react to them. That's the key thing. You've got to have, uh, you've got to take action based on what you might want to see depending on your own specific circumstance. Absolutely. Okay. What's the worst advice you hear when it comes to fitness and golf? 
Oh, I, I, I think there's some horrendous looking exercises out there that people pass off as golfish exercises okay. because they look like the golf swing. You know, people stood on top of all sorts of BOSUs and Swiss balls and, and this and that and the other, you know, and that's basically comes from a fundamental point of misunderstanding mm-hmm. of what the golf um the golf swing is or the requirements of golf are so there's some you, you know not great looking exercises out, out out there the other thing would be as well really is just making sure that you put all of that in context so yeah i would probably i would probably say that if we can if we can just you know put a match underneath all these golfish exercises then that would be that would be a useful starting point for us really <laughs> What would you say to someone who tries to jump on a Swiss ball having never done it before? What would you say? That, that... Get out now. Yeah, and they out. Yeah, no. I, question the reason. Sure you had to deal with that injury. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> question why they're standing on the Swiss ball trying to hit a driver in the first place. Yeah. Well, he was just trying to jump on it, which is even worse. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he quickly moved from underneath his feet. <laughs> anyway, last one. What are three golf truths for you? Three truths about truths about golf. Never any easier. Say that again, sorry. Never gets any easier when you try and play. Okay, and easy. I, I, uh, I, I do play quite infrequently. Hmm. Um, another truth would be that we're definitely seeing the landscape change from a golf fitness perspective, which is fantastic. I've been working with golfers for 20 plus years now, and particularly over the last five to 10 years, there's been an enormous leap forward in in players training, treating themselves like athletes. And we're seeing the performance of that come through on the course now. And, you know, when you look at the young, uh, particularly the American college players coming through, they've got higher club head speeds than some of the current tour players. So, you know, that, that whole evolution of golf fitness is, has been fantastic really. Um, and another truth would be, uh, I think everybody should hit a golf shot like me. Yeah, and you two are privy to that, you know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, I, I think the third truth actually is I'm just going to have to think about that one for a second, actually, because that's quite an interesting question. Um, I think what people want from from physical training, from golf, from golf fitness, and what they're willing to put in sometimes is mismatched, and I see this a lot in youth players and it tends to be a youth male who has aspirations of becoming a tour pro um and i i use aaron as as an example a lot of the time you know in terms of his diligence his preparation and and everything else that we see he goes through week in week out and now i kind of outline that to this player saying look you you know if you want to be a tour player it's great to have that aspiration and don't let anyone tell you you can't do anything in life but it comes with the caveat that you need to be doing this, 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 and this, and then you need to do that probably for five to 10 years to get anywhere close to being a tour player. And you see the light bulbs come on because some will respond to that mm-hmm. and some will think, I did that's what it takes to be a tour pro because there's an awful lot of great golfers out there. We know, you know, lots of great golfers, but they've not been it professionally despite being fantastic golfers and that's sometimes because there's not enough attention to detail in certain areas you know but 
sometimes it's because, you know, it's just not meant to be for them. But I think you've got to give yourself the best chance you possibly can to fulfill your dream if you want to be a tour player. Talent isn't enough, is it? Exactly. The, the work is, uh, yeah, we all know how hard it is to get on tour and to actually perform and do well. It's, uh, it creates, you know, an awful lot of work and dedication and commitment. So, Absolutely. And structured as well. You, you know, you can work hard, but if you work hard down the wrong path and it's misdirected, then, then, you know, that's not going to be particularly productive. So, you know, have a team of people around you that can advise you appropriately from, from coaches to fitness experts, to mindset coaches, to whatever, whatever you need in your team really to get you on the right path. And then, yeah, just work hard and work consistently. Brilliant. Love it. Brilliant, Andy. Well, look, thanks for the time. I think if this has been a nice podcast to do. Look, we've known you for a long time. But I think it's good. You know, we always want to give back to the golfing world. And I think because a lot of golf, let's say fitness and health is aimed at performance. I think yeah. hopefully this podcast will reach a lot of people. And they'll start thinking about not just how well they're going to play, but more about, well, look, how long can they play for? How can yeah. they stay fit? And, and just think about themselves. And I think it's a perfect time at the moment with what's going on. It's just paying some attention to us. Look after our bodies and our mind and, and if we can just play this game for a lot longer, there's a good chance that the performance will be better as well. Protect it. Yeah, absolutely. Where, where should the guys follow you? Obviously, you've got your sports performance podcast, which is doing great. Um, you know, where else can they go? Yeah, I've, I've my, my clinic. I'm a, I'm a clinical physiotherapist, a sports performance consultant. So that's w.active-therapy.com. Um, and I'm doing uh, quite a bit more online work now because I've got expertise in certain areas and the online um, scene has developed a lot more. So I've consulted people from um, Abu Dhabi, Miami, you know, in this lockdown period, which has been good because that's been the specialist work that I do. So I'm happy to do online consultancy work with people where required. Um, as you mentioned, I've got the sports performance show. We're in our fourth series now, and that's been fantastic. Got some world expert guests and then me. Um, <laughs> I, I enjoy interviewing the guests and they're all leaders in their field. And it's a broad perspective of sports performance. So that ranges from strength, conditioning to nutrition to uh, performance psychology. And the ethos of the podcast really is to take what the elites do and distill that down into your level of sport whatever that might be. So we can take lessons from the elites and from the professionals and irrespective of our level of sport, we can distill that down and use what we need to use. And these guests provide great information, information, sorry, week in, week out. And I'm just thoroughly enjoying hosting that. So they're the, the main vehicles, really. I'm on the, the socials. If you just tap in active therapy on Instagram, Twitter, um happy to field questions for people happy to help out try not to get into too much negative stuff on social media try to be helpful you know be positive try and retweet things that might be useful so happy to interact with guys there as well Super. thank you so much for your time again as pleasure he says as those are good information on the sports performance show so go and check out his podcast sorry I have to follow you up on that information <laughs> <laughs> yeah, go and check him out after you listen to this podcast. Andy C, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Andy. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode. We hope you found some great value in it. And if you did, make sure you subscribe to the podcast and share it with a friend. Also, let us know your feedback by leaving us a rating or review over on iTunes. And remember, if you want to go deeper and really improve your game, head over to meandmygolf.com and start your free trial and check out one of the many plans that are seeing incredible results. Thanks again for listening and we look forward to speaking to you next week.